It is so good to be in the house of the Lord, to feel his great presence. I'm curious, where is Sister Booker? There she is, hallelujah. She was hid amongst the stuff. Praise the Lord. Okay. Listen, I know she's homesick. I was hoping she hadn't left. <laughs> Praise God. She gets to go home tomorrow. But I want to say we have thoroughly, absolutely, thoroughly, totally enjoyed ourselves, enjoyed being here with you. And I do not believe that tonight is going to be any exception. The food, the fellowship, the kindness, the hospitality is just simply unparalleled. I don't know if the people in the South, uh, I, don't, I don't understand, but, but uh, anything seems like South of Oklahoma just knows how to treat people okay. Praise God. So thank you so very, very, very much. I enjoyed, I, that's not even the right word, Brother Pixler's message today was fabulous. It was tremendous. It was exceedingly moving to my soul. And Brother Pixler, thank you for obeying the Lord. And thank you that as a man, a young man, it is obvious you have given yourself to the reading of the word of the Lord and to the study of the word of the Lord. And my hat is off to you. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Praise God. Thank you so much for that good word. And uh, so good to be with Brother and Sister Spell. They just, they just know how to treat folks and make you feel so at home. I mean that. And I enjoyed everything. I enjoyed the music. When this uh, quartet, men's quartet, was singing, and they said, everybody join along. <laughs> I said, I ain't ever sung like that in my life. How can I join along? Praise God. That was beautiful. Everything's been beautiful. Praise the Lord. Thank you, ladies, for all of the work that has gone in to this meeting. Would you turn with me to two places in the word of the Lord? Mark chapter 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. Mark 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. It is so good to be here with so many friends. And I would, uh, I would try and name you, but I know I'd miss some, and we'd both feel bad, but I mean it. Thank God for good, precious friends that love this apostolic way. Praise the Lord. And I'm proud, amen, to be your friends, to be counted in this number of apostolic preachers. Amen. So with that, I'd like to read to you, beginning with Mark chapter 14, and beginning with verse 32. 
And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And then one verse in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses below it. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And let's ask together that God would anoint every heart and every soul in this place tonight. God, we love you. We're mindful of you. Lord, in your name, in your name, in your name. God bless you so very, very much. You may be seated. I praise your name, Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And uh, I'll probably repeat the question here in the next little bit. It'll be right now. Before you... Uh, say yes or raise your hand, I want you to really, really think about this because sometimes these things cost us. My question is simply this to each and every one of us, how many here desire, would like, a deeper 
more spiritual relationship with God than you've ever had before. Now, just because I'm fixing to preach what I'm fixing to preach, by no means is going to assure that. But I, you probably gave assent in your spirit. But I want to say that there is something about human nature being what it is, and God's nature being what it is, that before that kind of a meeting of the mind and spirit can take place, uh, it really tends to cost the flesh some things. Case in point, the first time Jesus ever sent his apostles out on a missionary journey, he sent them out by two and two, but prior to their going, after he gave them power and authority to preach the gospel and to cast out devils, he also, the Lord who gave, also taketh away. And he took away from them their purse, their scrip, their money, their bread. They had an extra coat and even down to the walking sticks that they had. And so while he gave them power and authority, he on the one hand gave, but on the other hand, he shook them down and took away the very essentials of existing out away from home. And so had he asked them before, I don't know what their answer would have been, but they had to understand that their God they were serving was all sufficient for their needs. And so he gave on the one hand, but he took on the other. So they could learn some lessons in life. And in the 22nd chapter of Luke, he gave it back to them and said, take it with you. It's fine now. It's okay. But I know this. That the people that I know that really deeply know God, however blessed they are at this present season materially, there are times they can look back to in their life when be it financial or physical or mental or emotional, there was, if I can use this term, a very high very dear price to pay for their relationship with God. And people see them today and all they can see is the blessings. It's like looking on Jacob with all of his sheep and all of his asses and all of his oxen and all of his sons and all of the blessings of the Lord. But they, they don't know about the time that he made pillows out of rocks and they don't know about the time that he wrestled with the angel of God and he was smote in the hollow of his thigh. All they can see is the blessings, but they do not realize the price that was paid to know God like he knew God. And same way with Moses. They could see Moses at the head of the mighty nation of Israel, but they could not picture him on the backside of a desert for 40 years. They could see David as king over all Israel with power and glory and might and honor, but somehow they could not see him running for his life and fleeing to the cave Adullam. 
And so it goes on and on. We see the Apostle Paul, amen, writing his great epistles. But we forget that he wrote most of them from a Roman prison. We can see the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. But we have a harder time picturing him out under a tree, weeping bitterly because he had disappointed the Lord. Amen. We can see John the Baptist turning a nation on its ear, but we can't see him being raised in the wilderness. Every great man of God has had his time when he was put and forged and molded and made it in the fire and the heat of trial, sorrow, and tribulation. Amen. So when I ask you tonight, how many of you would like a deeper, more special, vibrantly rich relationship with God than you have ever had before. I want you to think before you answer. Because it really might cost you more than you want to spend. But if you're willing to spend it, it's worth far more than anything you can imagine. Now I've read to you out of Mark chapter 14, Jesus praying in the garden. We, Lord willing, will get back to that at a later time. But I read to you out of Paul's first letter to his son in the gospel, Timothy. And he is writing to him, and he knew and he understood that Timothy, as well as himself, were facing a problem with the Judaizer sect of the church. That was those people that felt like that you were to be justified only by the works of the law. They did not have the revelation of the real grace of God. They did not have the revelation of the blood of Jesus Christ, of the power of ongoing repentance, and the power of the baptism of the Holy Ghost to live above sin. Hallelujah. And so he talked about people that had turned aside under vain jangling. And he wanted Timothy to know that the law was good, and the law was rich, and the law was right, and the law was just, and the law was holy. But he said the end of the commandment. Now, in the book of Hebrews, and I personally believe Paul was the author of Hebrews, he talked about those, remember those that have the rule over you, considering the end of their conversation. When a man is preaching to you, it is one of the easiest things in life to pick out certain things that are as yet unexplained in the course of his message, harp on them, get hung up on them, get snagged on them, and use that point to tear apart what he's saying. When he's speaking and said, look, wait till he's done preaching and then consider the end of his conversation of what he's trying to say. Here he is saying, we need to consider the end of the commandment. We need to consider the totality of the law. We need to understand that when God gave the law, he gave it with a purpose in mind. And 
we need to keep in mind what the end he was looking for to be produced, what it would be. Somewhere, he said along the line, people get swerved. They turn aside the vain jangling, and they desire to be teachers, but they don't understand what they say, nor whereof or how to even affirm what they say. But he said, the end of the commandment, when it has had its full, proper sway, influence, and effect on a human being, it is to produce three things. Number one, if the law is really allowed to do its work, it will produce love out of a pure heart. That's love to God and love to man. The law has the ability to produce that if it is allowed to have its way. The second thing that it produces is a good conscience. Again, towards God and towards man. And the third purpose of the law, if it would have been allowed to have its way, is that it would produce faith unfeigned. Unfeigned faith. Real faith. Sincere faith. Genuine faith. True faith. Amen. This was the purpose of the Ten Commandments. This was the purpose for the other 603 commandments that were given in the first five books of the law called the Pentateuch or the Torah. This is the reason for those 613 commandments. And if they would have been allowed, amen, to have the desired effect in the children of Israel's life, it would have produced love out of a pure heart. It would have produced a good conscience. It would have produced faith unfeigned. Hallelujah. If the word, as he said in 2 Thessalonians, would have been allowed to have free course in their life. If the word, and if I can use the term, the grace that the word could produce, had not been frustrated, had the word, when they heard it, been mixed with faith, by them that heard it. It would have produced love towards God and man out of a pure heart. It would have produced a good conscience toward God and man. And it would have produced faith unfeigned. But somewhere the word got hung up. It was good. It was right. It was holy. It was pure. Romans 7 and 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the law is just, and the law is good. There was just one problem that the law had. It didn't work too good on people. Amen. In Romans chapter 8, Brother Spell, read verse 3. For what the law could not do. Oh, what the law could not do. In that it was weak through the flesh. Here was the problem with the law. It was weak through the flesh. Now, not everybody had that problem with the law. 
But Israel as a whole failed in that miserably because it was weak through the flesh. Amen. But God in His goodness and God in His wisdom and God in His righteousness. Hallelujah said, I'm going to have to do one better than this. If they'd have let the law have its perfect work, if they would have let it just be mixed with faith, if they wouldn't have frustrated it, if they'd have received it with meekness, amen, if they'd have acted upon it, if they'd have loved it, if they'd have lived it, if they'd obeyed it, amen, it would have produced some things in them. It would have given them a good conscience. It would have given them love out of a pure heart. It would have given them unfeigned faith. Yes. Hallelujah. So, what the law could not do. Read. God sending his own son in the likeness God of sin. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin. You three boys. Come here. Come on up here. Stand right here. I want you boys to really frown. Come on, look mean, son. Mean. Come on. Ooh. All right. Look unhappy. Now look happy. All right. In this eighth chapter, I want you to begin reading at verse 7. Here are three human beings. Boys, under the old dispensation, had you let the word of God have its way, it would have produced in you faith unfeigned, a good conscience, and love out of a pure heart. But it was weak through the flesh, therefore you're sad. Read verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Here was the problem. The carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject. You got a girlfriend or something? You're too happy. Because it is not subject to the laws of God. Neither indeed can be. Neither indeed can it be. Read. So then they that are in the flesh cannot they that are in God. the flesh cannot please God. Read. But ye are not in the flesh. Oh, but ye are not in the flesh. But in the spirit. So if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. You know, you're neither happy or sad, are you? Praise God. You are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man. Now, go to verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. Carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. All right. Read. Go to verse 5. For they that are after the flesh... They that are after the flesh. Do mind the things of the flesh. They do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit. They that are after the spirit. The things of the spirit. They mind the things of the spirit. Verse 3. For what the law could not do. What the law could not do. In that it was weak. 
In that it was weak through the flesh. Yeah. God sending his own. God sending his own son. In the likeness of, in sinful, the likeness flesh. of sinful flesh. And for sin. And for sin. Condemn sin. Condemn sin. In the flesh. In the flesh. Read. That the righteousness of the law. That the righteousness of the law. Might be fulfilled in us. Might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh. Who walk not after the flesh. But after the spirit. But after the spirit. There is no reason for defeat. There is no reason, amen, to go through life frustrated. Amen. Thank you, boys. Thank you. We all have access to a walk with God. I'm not saying we all have it. I'm not saying I have it. But I'm saying we all have access. To a walk with God through the Spirit that can produce a good conscience, unfeigned faith, and love out of a pure heart. We must let the Word and the Spirit have its way in our life. Amen. Now again, not everybody in the Old Testament was a failure. And not everybody that was a success was under the dispensation of the law. Be that as it may, every man that was successful, they were successful in letting whatever commandments they had received have its proper effect in their life. They received it with meekness. Whatever it was, however little it was, or however much it was, whatever God gave them, they accepted it and they acted upon it. That is the reason that Abraham was a success in God. A success in God. Now, you say, well, he didn't have all that much to act upon. Well, he was a hundred years old, and his son, via Hagar, was Ishmael, was 13 going on 14, and his newborn boy was there, and he had 300 servants, and God said, walk before me and be thou perfect. And then he got to the specifics and said, which means today, circumcise yourselves and all your company. Now, that cost him something. I'm on it. Brother Spell, thank you for giving me time. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to get sidetracked several times. Forgive me. I'm going to just throw something in right here. Because you don't always get this opportunity. You know, sometimes people think that because of some of our standards, we're really a stupid people. You know what I mean? 
one little traditional standard that we have had uh, is about uh, facial hair on men. You know, it's just been there. And uh, people kind of think that we're stupid about that. I'm going to tell you a little story. I was preaching for Brother I.H. Terry. I'd been there about four or five weeks. We were there several weeks more, if my memory serves me right. I got a knock on the door of my trailer, and a young man was standing out there, and he was, he was, um, he was very hairy. And he said, am I going to hell because of this right here? I'd never even seen him. I said, son, why, why are you asking me this? He said, because there's an old man running around this place told me I'm going to hell, and he's got chapter and verse to show me. I said, is it the pastor? He said, no, it's the gardener. I said, oh, okay. Okay. Ah, uh, I said, let me ask you something. I said, I've never seen you before. Are you familiar with this church? He said, yeah, I was baptized in Jesus' name here several weeks ago. I said, really? He said, yes. I said, do you know why you were baptized? He said, yes, I was baptized for the remission of sins. And, uh, and so, uh, I said, you really understand your repentance and baptism? He said, yes. I said, do you have the Holy Ghost? He said, no, I do not. I said, do you understand what it is? He said, yes. You'll speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives you the utterance. I said, but you don't have it. He said, no, I don't. I said, okay. Now, I know what I'm about to say may cross some theology, and I understand the other side of this, and I have no problem with it. But I said, this is just me. I said, you know, son, I think Jesus probably had a beard. He said, well, I do too. I said, I wouldn't doubt, but what all of the apostles did. He said, well, me too. I said, I don't think they went to hell, do you? He said, I sure hope not. I said, well, I do too. I said, but, you know, that was 2,000 years ago, and that was in the Middle East, and that was a different culture, and now we're in America in the 1980s, and it's a different world. And I said, you know, the Bible said I seek not to offend the church, the Jews, or the Gentiles. We shouldn't want to offend three people on earth. And as far as God is concerned, there's only three types of people on earth. Not color or anything else. You're either a Jew, you're a Gentile, or you're in the church. That's it. That's it. That's all he sees. That's all he sees. Amen. Jew, Gentile, or church. Paul said, I don't want to offend either one. I said, so, you know, in the book of Mark chapter 8 and in the book of Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, Whosoever forsaketh mother, father, sister, brothers, wife, children, houses and lands for my sake and the gospels shall receive a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. I said, do you note that Jesus said there's two things that we do think one is for his sake and the other is for the gospel. 
God's sake. I said there's some things we do for the sake of the gospel that Jesus does not require himself. I said I'll give you a case in point. In the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul came back, amen, and he, he uh, when he got back to Antioch, the Judaizers had come down. And they said, hey, look now, said, uh, 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 these people got to be circumcised to be saved. Paul said, I did not put up with them for the space of one hour. But I went up by revelation to Jerusalem, and I took Titus with me. And he said, I want you to know, they compelled nobody to be, bad, uh, to be circumcised. Amen. Not a one. That's all in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. He said, yes, I understand that. I said, but in the very first thing that happened in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul had the decrees, Silas had the decrees, amen, they were going about saying, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, and he went, and he went to uh, Lystra, I believe it is, and he found a young man there by the name of Timotheus, whose mother was a Jew, and his father was a Greek, and him did Paul take and circumcise. He had the decrees, nobody's got to be circumcised. And he read them, and he preached them, and Timothy was nobody's fool. But him he did circumcise because they were going to an area to preach where there was much Jews there. I said, that boy didn't need to be circumcised to be saved, but what he did, he did for the sake of the gospel. He did it for the sake of the gospel. And there's some things we do because we just don't want to offend. I said, now, son, I'm going to tell you something. You see all those houses over there? He said, yes. I said, if you were to knock on each door, hold your Bible in your hand and say, I want to show you a revelation that I've received in the word of the Lord concerning being baptized in Jesus' name. I said, chances are, some people are going to slam the door in your face. And when they turn inside, they're going to say, there's some hippie out there peddling trash. I said, whereas you get just really nice, clean looking, you're going to knock on those doors. Chances are the very same people are going to slam the doors in your face. And they're going to say, some guy is out there peddling trash. But they won't negate the gospel over your appearance. He said, do you mean to tell me that I might, this might be a stumbling block? I could have kissed him. And then I said, sir, let me ask you something. Which would be easier for you to shave that or be like Timothy and be circumcised? And both of it's for the sake of the gospel. That night, he came to church. First time anybody had seen him for many weeks. All he had was a mustache left. He stood up and he said, I'm moving this way. He said, bear with me. The last night of the revival, he came and the cookie duster was gone. And that night he received the Holy Ghost. And tonight he's a preacher. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! 
And every time I see him, he goes. Amen. I just said that to say, we're not village idiots. We're not Neanderthals. There is a good book. There is a good God. There is a grace of God. There is a power of the Lord. There is a love of God. There is a clean conscience. I'm here to tell you, we need to let the things of God have their perfect way in our lives. Amen. Everybody that was successful in living for God, amen, be it Abraham or Moses or Samuel or David or Elijah or Elisha, they were all successful because they held this conviction. God is right in whatever he does and whatever he says and whatever happens in my life. God is right. God is right. God is right. God is right. Whether I understand the commandment or not, God is right. God is right. Whether I understand my situation or not, God is good. God is great. God is holy. Amen. But not everybody was successful. Cain failed in the grace of God. Cain frustrated the grace that was there for him in his time. And if you wonder why there was no grace in the Old Testament, you do err not knowing the scriptures. The word grace is there. In fact, in both the Old and the New Testament, the words favor in the Hebrew and grace are the exact same words, both in Hebrew and in Greek. So when it said Mary was highly favored of the Lord, she was highly graced of the Lord. It's the exact same words in either Hebrew or Greek. There was a lot of grace to be found in the Old Testament. And that grace, let me tell you something. There's a better definition for grace than unmerited favor. No, 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 no. That's mercy. That's a good definition for mercy. But grace is a teacher. The grace of God which hath appeared unto all men teaches us, teaches us, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. And I want you to know from Canaan, everybody was taught, live righteous, live godly, live holy in your generation. Live righteously, live godly, live holy in your generation. The doctrine of separation is not a new doctrine. It's from Genesis to Revelation. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And Abraham understood it, and Moses understood it, and Samuel and David and Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and all the rest, they understood it. And they did not fail in their dispensation. The frustrators, the failures, the Cains, the Balaams, the King Saul's, the Solomon's in their latter end, the, the Jonah's when he didn't cooperate, and the Gehazes of life. They failed, every one of them, because somewhere in their life, they decided what was right and what was wrong. Somewhere. Amen. They made right 
and wrong based on their own eyes and thoughts and outlooks. They became dismal failures because they took the prerogative and the choice of what was right and wrong out of the hands of God and they said, we'll be the judge. From Cain deciding what he would offer. Amen. Some people feel that Cain's offering was rejected because uh, simply what it was and that he didn't know no better because he was a tiller of the ground. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. They used the thought that uh, faith is walking to the edge of all the light that you have and then leaping off into the dark. That's not faith. That's ignorance. Amen. God didn't want nobody leaping off into the dark. Faith is walking in the revealed word of God. Faith is walking in the light he shows you. You know why Abel offered up what he did? Because God told both of them what he wanted. Amen. And Abel said, good enough for me, God. And Cain said, I want to do something else. That's the difference between religion and salvation. Amen. Anybody, the world's full of religion. All religion is is what anybody decides to offer up to God. That's their religion. And religion fills the earth of people offering up what they think is a good thing to offer up to God. I'm not interested in religion. God is not interested in religion. I'm interested in salvation. God's interested in salvation. Hallelujah. Religion is what man offers up. Salvation is what God offers down. And you either accept it or you reject it. You act upon it or you spurn it. You go for it or you say, I know better. And so Cain thought he was smarter than God. And Balaam thought he was smarter than God. Amen. And King Saul thought he was smarter than God. And Solomon came to the place. And Jonah got to the place. And Gehazi got to the place. And Ahab got to the place. They all were smarter than God. Amen. They would decide what was right and what was wrong. And they, all of them, save Ahab, that had had a walk with God, lost it. They lost their relationship. They lost what closeness they had. They lost what intimacy was there when they began to decide what was right and what was wrong. Now of all of the relationships that the Bible tells us of, there is none so moving and none so beautiful, none so special, none so deep, none so uncluttered as was the relationship of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Please remember, prior to the fall, they knew nothing about any 613 commandments. Not a thing. 
They did no work. They walked around naked. They knew no sin. They knew no shame. They knew no sorrow. They knew no curse. The only thing they knew was three things. Number one, God is near and dear. Number two, life is beautiful. And number three, don't eat a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's all they knew. Brother Spell, I would to God I could have pastored in the Garden of Eden. Our text for today, don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God bless you. See you next week. That's it. That was it. Hallelujah. And God was near and dear. And life was beautiful. We'll just stay away from that tree. Now, I'm going to show you the very first standard in the Bible. The very first one. Amen. Using the word standard as we commonly understand it. When the serpent in the third chapter of Genesis came to Eve, he said, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of every tree that is in the midst of the garden. I do not believe, as the pictures tell us, that Adam and Eve, or excuse me, that Eve was standing there looking at the tree and the serpent was curled up in it, talking to her. Rather, she was nowhere near that tree. Thank you. She was probably on the outskirts of the garden because she made reference to the tree being in the midst of the garden. She was not there on location. But the devil was beginning to plant something in her mind. Can I tell you? You don't have to be, amen, up to the window of a bar looking in to be tempted. All you got to do is be on the outskirts of the garden. Hallelujah. I'm going to tell you something. There's no worse place to be than on the outskirts of the church. If you want to know what the devil does is talking. It's away from the middle of the church. Be that as it may, he said, yeah, God said, thou mayest not eat. And she said, of the trees of the garden, all of them, we may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, we don't touch it, we don't eat it. 
in verse 3. Now when God in the second chapter talked to Adam, he said, don't eat it. The day you eat it, thou shalt surely die. God never said, don't touch it. Technically, you could have taken the fruit, put it in fruit bowls, put it on your table. Technically, you could have juggled it. Technically, you could have carried them around in your pocket and never died. The sin was in the eating of it, not the touching of it. And God never said, don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. So where did she get her information about don't touch? There's only one other source. Remember, God spoke to Abraham, to Adam concerning this matter. Why? He was the first that was created, and there was headship there. And I can picture in my mind's eye Adam and Eve walking around, and, and, and he's showing her the home, and, and he said, that's a horse. She said, how do you know? He said, I named it. She said, you're so smart. That's, that's a falcon. How do you know? I named it. Well, what's that? That's an eagle. Well, I can't tell the difference. Trust me, baby. That's an eagle. Oh, Adam, you're so smart. He'd named everything. What's this? That's an orange. What's this? That's a peach, just like you. Oh, Adam, you're so sweet. And then the man who was created in the image of God, who had not sinned, he had no laws save one. He had a good conscience. He had love out of a pure heart. He had faith unfeigned. And he walked with his God every night in the cool of the evening. And understand that in that relationship with his God, if you can picture this, there was not one thing negative. No condemnation. Everything was just good and clean and positive. Powerful. I had a friend of mine who recently died on an operating table. Had a massive heart attack. And he was on his way to glory. This is his testimony. He said... I saw myself, and I was there. I was approaching gates of pearl. He said they opened before me, and when they did, I saw a number which couldn't be numbered, and there was worship, and there was praise, and they were off in the distance. And he said there was a throne, and they were round about the throne, worshiping, praising. And he said, 
I began to make my way towards And he said, the only way I can describe the feeling, he said that there was absolutely no negatives. Nothing but good. Nothing but pure. No fear. Nothing but joy. We can't, we can't even hardly picture it. And yet Adam and Eve had that. And every night he'd walk in the cool of the eve. So as he's taking her on the stroll, and there's a falcon, and there's an eagle, and there's a peach, and there... Eve, I've got something to tell you. And I want you to listen well. This tree, we don't eat it. We don't even touch it. And he was incapable of lying. And he didn't lie because if she'd have never touched it, she could have never ate it. If she'd have never touched it, she could have never ate it. That is the first standard in the Bible. And the next time somebody starts kicking about standards, that's fine, sir. We don't touch it. That way we don't eat it. Hallelujah! I'm not interested in it being on my kitchen table. I don't want it in a food bowl. I don't want it around me. I don't want to touch it. But one day the devil talked to her and he put a seed thought in her mind. And then she began to make her way back to the midst of the garden. And up till that time, their nakedness, all of it, right and wrong, was in the hands of God, not them. We'll say it again. Right and wrong was in the hands of God. God was near and dear. Life was beautiful. And right and wrong is in his hands. Pure conscience, faith unfeigned, and love out of a pure heart. She touched it. She didn't die.
You can touch things that have been preached against and not die. But the problem is something's been broke down and it's just a little bit of time before you're eating it. I'm going to tell you something. You better thank God if you've got a pastor that out of love and a pure heart and sincere faith wants you to keep a good conscience. I used to hear Elder Nelson say, I'd rather sleep with a dirty, mangy dog than a bad conscience. At least you can kick the dog out. But what do you do with a smudged up, filthy conscience? Amen. And she took right and wrong into her own hands. And she decided it's good to look at. I believe it'll taste good. And it'll make me like God. And she ate. And though from that point she was a walking dead person, she could still function. And I've seen people go after the things of the world and think that God didn't mean what they said because they can still walk and talk and move and even lift their hands. And they think they've escaped. But what they're not understanding is something if not immediately, depending on what it is, is slowly, surely, inexorably, and unless they repent, inalterably, dying in their soul. Amen. And she gave to Adam and he did And the eyes of them both were open. And religion got started. Not salvation. Religion. Baby, we uh, we better cover ourselves up. Yeah, how shall we do it? Well, let's get some fig leaves here. And we'll use these fig leaves and cover us up. Salvation never... I mean, religion never has the ability to cover only salvation. And so here came God walking in the garden in the cool of the eve. You see, God's faithful. He still walks in the garden even though things are not right in the garden. And so therefore, don't take the presence of God as the seal that everything's okay. 
repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And the Madeline Murray O'Hare's laugh at this portion of scripture because they say if he's an omniscient God, why is he going to the garden asking dumb questions? Because God is willing to pay the, play the fool all the way from Genesis to Calvary. If it means somebody will accept it. He's willing to take the shame of asking stupid questions to hanging naked himself in order to reach us. And so he comes knowing but in his goodness reaching. He knew where Adam was, but did Adam know where he was? So he said, Adam, where art thou? Adam, where are you? He could have went to the bush and revealed it, but he Played the fool, reaching for repentance. When he finally, when they met, he said, I, I hid myself because I was naked. He said, another dumb question. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? the which I told you, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. And the age-old process started in the garden. Buck passing. I've often wondered what the history of the world would have been if at that critical moment, at that time of visitation, Adam would have fell to his knees and said, God, I'm sorry, forgive me. But instead, he blamed God and he blamed humanity. He said, the woman you gave me. I'm a victim. It's not my fault. And when he saw no repentance. He went to the woman with another stupid question. What is this thou hast done? Hoping to hear, I'm sorry. She said, serpent to God. And when he saw no repentance, John 4 tells, 1 John 4, 6 says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Every action, every deed, every statement, every judgment that God has ever 
or will ever perform is based on his essence. He is love. And because he loved them, I don't want to get bothered, he said, Woman, I'm going to curse you. You could have had children with no labor and travail. But I know humanity is going to walk off and leave me wholesale. They're going to leave love. They're going to leave comfort. They're going to leave understanding of which I'm the source. So I've got to forge something in you. I've got to put you on the anvil. I've got easy come, easy go. So woman, I've got to make it where you love your babies. Because if mothers, if mothers don't love their babies, Babies, where are they going to learn gentleness? Where are they going to learn kindness? Where are they going to learn comfort? Where are they going to get a mother's touch? And psychologists are now saying that children that are, un that are abandoned to the point that they receive no human touch, they got a psychological term for them. It's called unattached. That means they have no conscience. We had a girl in our school we're allowed to come in from the outside. The father came in, peppered me with a lot of questions. I didn't understand, but we allowed her to come. I was in prayer one day, and the Lord showed me, this girl is out to destroy your son. And I got to praying, and I got to fasting. Two days later, the father came in and said, I'm pulling my daughter from school. It didn't break my heart. She abided by all the rules. And he began to tell me, I adopted her from El Salvador. She's unattached. I said, what's that? My daughter is bereft of any conscience. And he began to tell me some nightmares. And he said, furthermore, she's out to destroy your boy. I said, the Holy Ghost already told me that. And I'd already warned him. I said all that to say this. All of us would have been unattached. Was it not for comfort and love? That woman holding that baby right there, whether you understand it or not or receive it or not, is helping put conscience into that baby. And God said, they've got to get it somewhere. So I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception. I'm saying it because I love you and I love humanity. And they've got to get it somewhere. And because women suffer so, and it's so painful to have a baby. But when that baby comes, something's been forged in her. And you can study it out the rest for yourself. Every curse God gave, he did it because he loved humanity. I said all that to say this. He wants us to love out of a pure heart. Adam and Eve, it's messed up. And so in process of time, I'm going to give more and more commandments if you will obey my word and trust me do you understand that when they fell in a garden 
They took right and wrong out of the hands of God. God said, now, I'm going to give you commandments. And when Moses comes along, he's going to give you 613 commandments. And when he's through, the prophets are going to arise, and they're going to give you some commandments. And even David's going to give you some commandments. And the reason I'm giving you all of these commandments is somewhere you've got to learn, amen, that right and wrong still is in the hands of God. And if God said it, it's right, it's good, it's just, it's holy, obey it, receive it with meekness. And Abraham learned the lesson. And Moses learned the lesson. And Samuel learned the lesson. While Balaam and Saul and Cain's and Gehazes, somewhere in their life, they said, No, I'm going to do it my way. Amen. Adam and Eve lost. So when God, amen, began to call us back from the fall, amen, right and wrong comes back to my domain to get man back into paradise, back into deep relationship with God. I'm going to give him some laws. I'm going to give him some rules. And it's true in the New Testament. There's many things we're commanded to do. But now listen to me. We are called to be more than just servants. Amen. He wants his church to be more than just a bunch of rule keepers. Though we keep rules. If all he wanted us to be was rule keepers, he'd have never called us sons, and he'd have never called us daughters, and he'd have never called us friends, and he'd have never called us his bride. This is deeper relationship than just rule keepers. And that's the reason we have more names for him than just master. If all he was was a lawgiver, then all we would call him is master, but we also call him father. We call him savior. We call him elder brother. We call him the good shepherd. We call him the fairest of 10,000. David called him my darling and my only one. He's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's a bright and morning star. He's the lily of the valley. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Hallelujah. Somewhere, and listen to me, the deeper your relationship, the more you trust him. The deeper the relationship, the more you believe him. The deeper the relationship, the more you command, you follow his commandments. The more you walk with him. The deeper you walk and go with him, the more you lose of yourself. So that your circumstances, your station, your situation, events, all things work to the good 
of them that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Son, you married? Come stand right here. Young lady in the red with the white deal on? Is that your boyfriend next to you? Oh, yeah, you don't miss that. Young lady in the plaid dress and the blonde hair. You married? Come on up here. What's your name, son? Joel? Well, that's my boy's name. I remember that. Now, Joel, you stand right here. Face me. Oh, right here. Joel. What's your name? Paula. Paula, you stand next to Joel right over here. Okay. Okay. Could we all stand, please? Let's all stand. <laughs> Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To witness the joining together in holy matrimony of Joel and Paula. For better, for yeah, you better get a mint. <laughs> for better, for poor. Better, worse, richer, for poor. Sickness and health. Till death doth give one of you relief. Is your mother here, Paula? Is your parents here? Where are they at? Wave, wave your hands, parents. Where are you at? Paula? Okay, Joel, where's your parents? Okay. I don't understand. Most time weddings, mothers are weeping. There's, there's tears and people are rejoicing. Now, Joel, do you promise to turn over you, give this woman money? Paychecks, work, labor, take care of her when she's sick, when she's not sick, when she's like she is, and when maybe she gets a little bigger, and, 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 and love and honor and cherish the rest of your life. Paula, you're going to wash his clothes, mend his socks, cook his breakfast, lunch, dinner, Clean his house. Don't look at Tom, Dick, Harry, Sam, uh, Zeke, and no more Mary, Susie, Sally, Bertha, or anything else. Forsaking all others. Well. Till death do you part. <clears throat> now, they don't look real excited about this. Mom and Dad don't even look all that excited. Of course, this would be the cheapest wedding you ever have anything to do with. But the reason, see, to hook these two people up with all these rules 
minus one element, and it's bondage. But when they're in love, and they want, and they're willing to commit because they love each other, honey, the next time somebody tells you you're in bondage, say, I'm not in bondage, I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm in love. It's not a bunch of rules to me, honey. I love him. I love him. I love him. It's not for me to decide what's right and wrong. Thy will, O oh Lord, I delight to do it. I receive with meekness the engrafted word. Okay, it's a no. God bless you. Hallelujah, hallelujah. You may be seated. I'm going to tell you all something. And I'm going to move on. These people that enjoy this newfound liberty. I have never went skydiving. How many in here have been skydiving? Been skydiving? Did you like it? They tell me the reason you like it is the unbelievable exhilaration. Because the only fear, there's two fears you're born with. Loud noises and falling. Everything else is developed. And the fear of falling when you leap out of that plane. And you just, woo. They say there's no feeling like it. Because it's a breaking of a natural restraint. But you do use a parachute, right? Two of them. And you are glad when they open. Can I tell you when somebody says, I've never been so free since I've been liberated. It's because they've leapt out. And what they're enjoying is nothing more nor less than the free fall. But if you stick around long enough, you'll watch them hit the ground. And on some trips, honey, there is no parachute. And whenever I hear them talk, I just say, yes, sir, you're definitely in free fall. And I'm sure you're enjoying it. But when you hit the ground, and if you ever wake up and you realize what you did to yourself, what you did to your family, what you did to your church, what you did to your soul, what you did to the souls of others. Can you imagine a man taking his whole family or a whole church? Leaping. I'm here to tell you folks, there ain't nothing wrong with leaving right and wrong in the hands of God where it belongs. 
God says it's right, it's right. God says it's wrong, it's wrong. That's all I need. That's all I need. That's all I need. Amen. I'm just going to throw something your way. It's a very dangerous thing to play with your conscience. You only got one, friend. Don't mess it up. For someone to come to the place, especially after they've known and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the kingdom to come, to look at 1 Corinthians 11 that talks about men's hair and women's hair. That it's a shame for a man to have long hair and it's a shame for a woman to have cut hair. For someone to be able to look at that and it is plain. And say... I know what it says, but it doesn't mean that. That effrontery, that brazenness, that callousness, that insensitivity, that attitude that says my ideas are better than God's ideas and my ways are better than God's ways, and I'm not leaving right and wrong into the hands of God. I'm big enough to take it in my own hands. That is the same attitude that if the Lord tarries, and if God's taking votes, I vote for pre-trib rapture. If he's taking votes, that's my vote. I don't know that he's taking votes, but that's whatever. But if he doesn't, That same spirit that will toy with 1 Corinthians 11 will go to Revelation 13 and be able to rationalize a mark in the right hand and a mark in the forehead and say, I know what it says, but that's not what it means. I'm here to tell you, the day you start toying with the Word of God, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, you're in trouble. If you're going to be successful in your walk, if you're going to go deep in your walk, you better leave right and wrong in the hands of God. Bless you. Now, Please stick with me. Let's take it a little deeper. It's one thing when it gives you what you can understand. But what about when it gives you what you don't understand? When that day comes, you're fixing to find out how deep you really, really are. Abram, away from thy kindred in thy country. Makes sense to me. They're idolaters. I'll do it. Lot wants to go. That's his business. I want you to circumcise yourself, your servants, and your sons. 
It's a seal. It's a mark of our calling. It may be painful, but it makes sense to me. Amen. And on and on. But one day God said, Abraham, I'm going to find out now. I'm going to take you past your ability to think, past your ability to rationalize, and past your ability to understand. I want to see how deep you're really willing to go. I'm going to give you something too big for you. You can't rationalize. You can't figure out. Yay, that makes no sense. I'm fixing to turn your world upside down and see if you'll still love me then and you'll still leave right and wrong in my hands when it makes no sense. What are you talking about, God? Take thy son Isaac, thine only son whom thou lovest, up to the top of a mount that I shall show thee, and offer him there a burnt sacrifice unto me. How do you make sense out of that? Where does that fit in? Right and wrong is one thing, God, but insanity is another. But you did say it. And took him to the top of the mount. He doted on this boy for at least probably 25 years. He'd waited for him for 25 Half a century had been wrapped up in him. And he laid him down. I don't understand. But I trust you. I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. And he raised his hand and God said, stop. That's all I wanted to see. That's all I want to know. And he walked off the mountain with a deeper, more special relationship than he had ever had before. One day there was a man that was perfect, upright, feared God, eschewed evil. He worshipped God three times a day. He offered sacrifice morning and night for his kids, just in case. One day, God said, Job, you want to go deeper? Do you want it to be more special? Give me a hand, son. I'm not going to tell you what's going on in the corridors of heaven. So it's not going to make any sense. You're not going to see what's transpiring 
between the angels and the demons. You're not going to know the challenges that I've laid at the feet of Lucifer and his replies. You're not going to see into the heavenlies. You're going to be blind to all that I know. Are you willing to follow? I'm going to take you on a walk, Job, to a deeper, more precious place than you've ever been. But I can't even warn you. I can't even tell you. And you won't understand until it's over. But if you'll trust me, it'll be worth it. And so, he awakes, he worships, he's loving his God, he hears the sound of running feet, and all of his oxen and asses are gone. He turns to the sound of running feet, and all of his camels and all of his servants are gone. He turns and hears the sound of running feet, and all of the sheep that he had and all of his servants are gone. And he looks and hears the sound of running feet. Now he finds out his children are gone. At least I can worship God from a good health. No, for it's over. That'll be gone. And at least I've got a wife that loves me. No. She's going to tell you to curse God and die. Well, thank the Lord. I've got good friends. No. They're going to sit around you with an audience, and they're going to stare silently for seven days, and when they speak, they're going to call you a hypocrite, a sinner, and a liar. But at least I'll still be able to feel God. No, because you're going to search before you and behind you and to the left and to the right. And you're not even going to be able to find God. And when you're thrown to the wind and you're thrown to the walls and you're thrown to the devil and you're thrown to the critics and you're thrown to the sorrows and you're thrown to the disappointments and you're thrown to the pain and it seems like you will never land for the tossing and turning and wheeling seems like a bottomless pit and that day he will say Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'm leaving right and wrong in the hands of God. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when you come out of it, son, you're going to have twice as much as you ever had before. Twice as many sons, twice as many daughters, twice as many sheep, twice as many asses and oxen and camels, and more friends. But more important than all of that, you're going to have a deeper, more special relationship than you ever dreamed. 
Brother Timothy Spelljik. All of the closeness, all of the unfeigned faith, pure conscience. Hallelujah. Amen. Love out of a pure heart was lost in a garden. And so in Mark, the 15th chapter, sinless, harmless, holy, undefiled. It was lost in a garden where somebody decided I'll take right and wrong into my own hands. And what Adam lost in a garden, the second man, Adam, had to get back in a garden. Let's stand.